And uh, we're going to continue our study in the life of Paul from the book of Acts. And it's somewhat introductory still as we work toward uh, his conversion, which will be next week, God willing. But we're going to look today at Acts uh, chapter 7, little, the last few verses and the first few, few verses of chapter 8. So I'll just read uh, actually a little bit from... Acts chapter 7, beginning, let's see, at, excuse me, Acts 6, verse 7, Acts 6, verse 7, I'll read verses 7 through 15, and then we'll jump over um, to the next chapter. So Acts 6, beginning at verse 7, and this is after the seven were chosen, Uh, If they were deacons, uh, it's not explicit, but it seems to be the case. But it says in verse 7, The word of God kept on spreading, and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. But some men from what was called the synagogue of the freedmen, including both Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and some from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and argued with Stephen. But they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly induced men to say, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came up to him and dragged him away and brought him before the council, that is the Sanhedrin. They put forward false witnesses who said, this man incessantly speaks against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Nazarene, Jesus, will destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. And fixing their gaze on him, all were sitting in the council, saw his face like the face of an angel. Wow, can you imagine that? Then turn over to... The next chapter, 7, and we'll pick it up at verse, let's see, let's pick it up at verse 51. He's concluding his sermon to those people that were described, the priests, the Sanhedrin, the scribes, and he says in verse 51 of chapter 7, You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets, which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who Receive the law as ordained by angels, and yet did not keep it. When they heard this, they were cut to the quick, 
And they began gnashing their teeth at him. But being full of the Holy Spirit, he, that is Stephen, gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears and rushed at him with one impulse. When they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. They went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord, <clears throat> excuse me, and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Having said this, he fell asleep. Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. So we find here this man, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit. Those words are only used of Jesus and Barnabas, interestingly. He was full of the Holy Spirit. He was preaching and contending, and they couldn't <clears throat> argue with him. He was so skilled and powerful by the aid of the Spirit, and they were getting so frustrated with him. <clears throat> the Jews, the elders, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, and the high priests, they were all there. And you can see, even as he... Uh, chapter 7, verse 1, the high priest said, are these things so? Asking Stephen this question. So all of these people, <clears throat> which we've seen all through the Gospels, not only just the, the broad uh, Jewish people, but the elders, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, the high priests, they were all, of course, throughout Jesus' life, those were the people that were conniving to put him to death. And even now, they're conniving to put Stephen to death. And as I've been reflecting on those people, and even thinking about Saul of Tarsus, of uh, educated under Gamaliel, the Pharisee of Pharisees, what could we learn about this? And there's several lessons. The first is this. Beware. You can be so close to the truth and yet so far from it. And Saul, like all these other people, all through the Gospels, we hear it over and over and over again, they would quote the Scripture, they would ask Jesus questions, but they always had a hidden motive. They were so close, they knew so much about the Old Testament, and yet they were so far away. So far that they actually killed Jesus. So far that they actually killed Stephen. And most of them went to hell. Now, it was encouraging we read the, the verse, a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. So even in the midst of this great darkness, there is light. God was saving people, even the priests, and even people, as we'll see in the next week, Saul being saved by God, 
meeting Jesus Christ, but beware, you can be so close to the truth and yet so far. You can read the Bible, study the Bible, preach the Bible, and, and we've seen this in the Bible, in the Bible itself, but even in our own day. We, we sadly know of, of preachers that have turned away and denied God. Or you could grow up in the church and you made a testimony, but then you fall away, you turn away, you can know so much, and yet in the end, if you don't cling to Christ alone, you can yet go to hell. So whenever I read about these elders and scribes, they were the leaders, and yet they were the ones that were supposed to be helping the people, but they were turning the people away from the Messiah, away from God. So there's always a warning and I think even it's exciting what we're going to see happen to Saul, but it's also grievous to know and to see how hard their hearts were when they studied the Bible. They knew the truths of the Bible to a degree, but they really didn't know God. And it's, it's, it's grievous. And I think all of those groups that we mentioned, uh, the high priest, the very people that would, would offer the sacrifice um, on the Day of Atonement and, and do many other things and supposedly be closest to God were furthest from God. And often it is, and throughout the Bible, it's the, the people that profess to know God who are the greatest troublemakers. So it's a warning to make sure that we truly have saving faith and that we persevere in that now, Stephen preaches a sermon to all of these hard-hearted people, and it's interesting that he gives several, he goes through the examples of Israel's history from Abraham, Joseph, Moses, Israel in Egypt, Israel in the wilderness, up to the time of the temple. But he has several rebukes. Um, in 7 verse 9, it says the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph. The majority were against him. And then we see that with um, uh, Moses, that his fellow uh, Israelites didn't understand and they, they condemned him. In verse 25 it says, but they did not understand that he was going to be uh, leading them uh, toward God. Uh, verse 35, um, it says, Moses whom they disowned. And verse 39, our fathers were unwilling to be obedient to him, to Moses, but repudiated him and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. So throughout his sermon, there are all these rebukes that those that should have known better didn't, and they questioned and they rejected the truth of God, just like these scribes, Pharisees, uh, the high priest, the Sanhedrin, and maybe Paul was hearing this, you know, we don't have all the details, but it seems that he probably heard it all. So what a rebuke that, and he lays out their history, and then he concludes with those words, you men who are stiff-necked, you know, your fathers killed the prophets, and now you just killed Jesus Christ. So it's a very powerful sermon that he uses their own history to seek to awaken them, to warn them, to stir them up, to turn to the true God and to repent. Again, they were supposed to be keepers and teachers of the law, yet they were the most blatant violators. Verse 53 of chapter 7, you received the law, yet you did not keep it. So close and yet so far. There was once a young man here, this was 
15 years ago, a boy sitting right here, and he asked me after the sermon, uh, Mr. McKinley, do preachers need to practice what they preach? <laughs> that was, uh, was like, okay, uh, out of the mouth of babes. Uh, it was funny, but it was sobering, and, and yet it's even a child gets it, and they might, maybe our children told us, well, you said don't do it, but you're doing it. Well, these people had the oracles of God and yet did not keep them. What a rebuke. And this is showing us something of Saul and the Pharisees, and we've heard it much from the Gospels already, but just a few reminders of that. And just another couple notes about his sermon. It's very interesting, I thought, the way Luke records it. At the beginning of his sermon in Acts 7, verse 2, it says, Hear me, brethren and fathers, the God of glory. He begins with the God of glory. And then what does it say before his death that he, he saw into heaven? And what did he see? The glory of God and Jesus. Interesting that, that that would be paralleled, that that was the beginning of his message, and then he saw the glory of God. Um, you know, we should do a study on Stephen and his sermon at some point, but seeking to keep to the life of Paul. Also, we can't uh, not mention that not only did he see the glory of God, he, sa- he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God, not sitting. It's interesting that it says Jesus is standing. You know, what did all that mean? We, we don't necessarily know, but um, Jesus, he saw him there. And he's told them, look, look at that, behold. Uh, what a powerful, uh, one-of-a-kind experience, miraculous, that he could see into heaven itself as it were. I mean, there's all sorts of questions you can think about, but he had a, a vision uh, somehow miraculously of, of God's glory and of Jesus. Yet, in the midst of all that, they stoned him to death. And these were the religious leaders. So again, beware, you can be so close to the truth and yet so far away. Well, then coming down to Acts 7.58 where Saul is introduced, again, when they had driven Stephen out of the city, they began stoning him, and the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. Remember, Luke and Paul were friends, and surely Paul told Luke the story of how it happened, and that's why he has all these details. This is the first description that apparently... Saul or Paul told of himself to Luke, the writer. Let's meditate on a few of these thoughts. Now, Saul just heard this sermon by Stephen, and he supported the stoning of Stephen. He heard those final Christ-like words, Lord, do not hold this against them. He heard all of that. He saw all of that. Yet his heart was hard. And Paul said of himself, as to zeal, he was a persecutor of the church. He was zealous, and he was so hardened that even seeing an innocent man who had been framed, murdered, and stoned, he was still hardened. And these witnesses, did you catch it in um, 6 verse 13? It describes those witnesses as what? False witnesses. They were liars. They were liars. They were fakes. These were the religious leaders who got them to tell lies about Stephen. And now these witnesses are laying aside their robes at 
Saul's feet, they were false witnesses. They were men that it says they that the others secretly induced these men. There was a conspiracy against Stephen. They were false witnesses. They were wicked witnesses. And they lay their cloaks because they, they have to remember the, the witnesses had to cast the first stones. You can find that in the, in the Pentateuch. They had to cast the first stones. So right, they gave their false witness against Stephen. They, they have to take off some of their outer garments so they can really hurl these stones. And they lay them at the feet of the young man named Saul. Some think young here is maybe 30 years old. We don't know for sure. But he was a man. He wasn't a boy. And we'll immediately see how much of an adult he was in the beginning of chapter 8. He watched over the robes of those murdering liars. Lesson 2. Woe unto those who support what God hates. Woe unto those who support what God hates. Turn over to Proverbs 6. You know, I love the Proverbs and there's much great practical wisdom, godliness and work clothes, much theology even in the book of Proverbs chapter 6. Listen to verse 16 through 19. There are six things which the Lord hates. Yes, seven which are an abomination to Him. Haughty eyes, and think of our context then, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, a false witness who utters lies, and one who spreads strife among brothers. How many of these explicit categories were committed on Stephen by the false witnesses. It even says here, God hates a false witness who utters lies. They were supposed to tell the truth about their fellow Israelites, and they lied. Woe unto those who support what God hates. Now, Saul did not give a testimony, but he watched over the robes of those false witnesses. This was a man who was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He knew what was going on. He knew they had uh, it was a false witness, and yet he didn't seek to defend Stephen, but he watched over their cloaks. He stood by happily. Though Paul would be later forgiven, he grieved about these events the rest of his life. And if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you might have the same experience, not as of Saul of being in a murder, but grieved at what you did before Christ. The devil can use that to trip us up, but we remember and we thank God we're forgiven. But our past is forgiven, but it's not obliterated. And Paul, many times, and even in Acts 22, he's, he reviews this, and he's, this is decades later, and he said, when the blood of your, your witness, Stephen, was being shed, I also was standing by approving and watching out for the coats of those who were slaying him. I'm sure tears may have welled up in his eyes when he remembered what he did approving and watching over the coats when God's servant, Stephen, his blood was being shed. This is the backdrop of the great apostle who was a great persecutor. 
And this is how it's introduced by Luke in Acts 7. Then moving into Acts 8, verse 1, which the chapter division is very odd, because 8.1 says, Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So there's a continuity between these chapters, and it's saying that Paul, uh, Saul was not merely, you know, he just happened to be watching their cloaks. No. He was actively engaged. He was in hearty agreement. What did he do outwardly besides watch their cloaks? We don't know, but in his innermost being, he was in hearty agreement. Maybe he was saying, kill him, kill him. Maybe he threw a few stones. We don't even know. But at least he was in hearty agreement with putting Stephen to death. He wasn't softened, again, by those false accusations, by the brutal murder. His heart was hardened, and he went forward with his mission to stamp out Christianity. This persecution was just the the beginning, really, of intense persecution in the church at Jerusalem and scattering the people of God. He became much more violent and aggressive than his own teacher, Gamaliel, who said, well, they're probably not that dangerous. If they're true, you know, it's going to be known. If they're false, you know, they're going to go away like these other people have. His disciple, Saul, was much more violent and aggressive. He didn't say release them from prison. He would put them in prison. As we look forward and we know that this man was saved, think of a Hamas uh, bomber killing innocent people. This was Saul of Tarsus. I mean, if we had known him, no wonder the people were afraid when he came to preach the gospel. (laughs) Is he really one of us? Or secretly sneaking in? It was terrifying. Yet, we look forward and we can't help but think, this is the apostle. This is our a great hero, if you will. This is the great preacher to the Gentiles and the Jews. And so we, we lesson three is this, looking toward chapter nine and his conversion, stand amazed at the power of God, which turned a persecutor of Christ into a preacher of Christ. Stand amazed at the power of God, the gospel of God, which turned this violent, aggressive, persecutor who was there at Stephen's murder and even was in hearty agreement with it, yet he would become the greatest preacher? Would we have believed that? If someone said, yeah, let's pray for Osama bin Laden, I I doubt he could be saved. One of the reasons we have the story of Paul's conversion, and we'll get to it momentarily, is to see that God can save anyone. Even a violent persecutor of Christ can be turned into a preacher of Christ. Praise his name that he can save such a man. Paul would say later, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The gospel is when it's blessed by God, it will either save or it will damn. And we rejoice and we stand amazed and we're encouraged that God would save such a one who was in hearty agreement with putting Stephen to death and would do much worse in the days following. 
Paul said himself to the Corinthians, For I am least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. As I've been reflecting on this, this man was was wicked to the tenth degree. Yet God saved him. And we stand amazed at the power of God in the gospel. Furthermore, and related to this, and we're hinting at it already, but Saul is the epitome of the most unlikely convert. Paul's the epitome of the most unlikely convert. Lesson four, Christ came to save great sinners. That's the good news. Christ came to save the sick. He came to save people like Saul of Tarsus. And even those priests that connived to put Jesus to death, we don't know their names, but it said, we read it earlier, many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. Again, you can think behind the scenes, maybe some of the people that said crucify him were later saved. At least this man who was saying, yes, put Stephen to death, this innocent man who, who they connived against, he would be saved. Christ came to save great sinners. We'll see more in chapter 9, but of course I'm thinking of 1 Timothy 1. Turn over to 1 Timothy chapter 1, one of my favorite verses in the New Testament. 1 Timothy 1, pick it up at verse 13. Even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor, and a violent aggressor. Yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. And verse 15, one to memorize and use in evangelism. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners and that sinners only among whom I am foremost of all. Yet, for this reason, I found mercy, so that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate His perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in Him for eternal life. Jesus came to save great sinners. He calls sinners to believe in Him, and those great sinners who have faith will be saved. That encourages us because we're great sinners too. And when we see great sinners around us, we should tell them that Christ saves great sinners. Repent and believe. And we praise the Savior of sinners. And this man, Saul of Tarsus, so just keep the strand there as you see him persecuting and holding the clo- watching over the cloaks of those who stoned Stephen, a violent aggressor in hearty agreement, persecuting the church. Yet he was converted. He was saved. So, if you're unsaved, believe in Christ. If you are saved, tell others about Christ and praise Him, the Savior of sinners. Sinners only. We sing Joseph Hart's great hymn about this. I will arise and go to Jesus in the chorus. And there's some other great lines in that hymn. You can look it up. We don't have in our hymnal. 
Uh, but it's, it's, there's a gospel call in these truths, of course, and Jesus proclaimed it in the gospels and the apostles proclaim it throughout the rest of the New Testament. Christ came to save great sinners. That's good news if you're a sinner, if you're even a great sinner. Continuing, on that day, the day that Stephen was the first martyr, this great persecution, this mega persecution began against the church in Jerusalem that had seen thousands added and baptized and, and so much was happening. There had already been a couple imprisonments, but now a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem was occurring. The church was in its infancy, yet it was, it was being persecuted already. Although, God's people have been persecuted since who? Who was the first martyr? Abel. Abel. So, from the very beginning of time, believers have been persecuted. And it happened all the way up until Christ was put to death. And then Stephen was put to death. And many Christians have been put in jail and imprisoned uh, since then until now. Did Jesus... Tell us otherwise would happen? No. He said, truly I say to you, there's no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mothers or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms. We wish there was a period after that. Along with what? Persecutions. Jesus promised to bless us in many ways, but he also promised persecution. And he concludes, and in the age to come, eternal life. 2 Timothy 3.12, all those who uh, desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And we thank God that we haven't had intense physical persecution ourselves, but it's, it's, it's happening and has happened to our brothers and sisters around the world. And may, if it does happen to us, and those that it's happening to, may we have the mind of Peter and the apostles who said, it's described of them, they were rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer for his name. So it's, it's beginning to ramp up immediately against the early church in Jerusalem. And we'll conclu- the, the passage is going to conclude uh, with the phrase that he would put them, that is, Saul would put them in prison, the believers in Jerusalem. And let's think a little more about this persecution, specifically imprisonment. And chapter, Hebrews 13, our, our next uh, two chapters from now, Paul, excuse me, whoever wrote Hebrews, maybe Paul, maybe Barnabas, let love of the brethren continue. Then he says, remember the prisoners as though in prison with them and those who are ill-treated since you yourselves also are in the body. Lesson five, let us pray and support our persecuted brothers and sisters. Let us pray and support our persecuted brothers and sisters do do you pray for the persecuted church? 
I know sometimes Wednesday nights, praise the Lord, we, we do remember and we pray for the saints that are persecuted. But as bad as we may think it is in America, it's really not that bad compared to what many of our brothers and sisters have experienced and are experiencing right now. And as I was thinking about this, I thought of China, I thought of India, I thought of North Korea, I thought of Pakistan, Indonesia, Malaysia. And then I remembered, I used to read a book. How many of you have or looked at the book called Operation World? I confess, I used to read that book regularly 25 or 30 years ago. But where is it now? Why am I not concerned about the persecuted church? I can complain about my job and and this or that, but biblical imperatives and illustrations are that we that I must remember the persecuted church. They're my brothers and sisters. If my literal brothers and sisters were in prison in America, would I be concerned? Would I be thinking about them? Would I be praying about them? I know some of you may uh, read or look at Voice of the Martyrs. There's, there's many, there, there's much information available. I'm sure you could talk to the shucks about India, uh, Lesha about what's happened in, in Manipur uh, or, or elsewhere. Uh, talk to our sister from Indonesia. It's grievous. Egypt. And I'm guilty. I don't think about, I don't pray for, or try to find a way to support my persecuted brothers and sisters. And church life from the beginning has been the story of persecution. So I ordered, reordered the book last night. And not only do I want to have the book so I can say I've, I've got it and show it to you, I want to, with my wife, and, and try to to look it through, and it's a, it's, a pra- it's a prayer guide to pray for the world and has great data about each country and, and the religions and how many evangelicals are there and specific things you can pray about. We have the information at our fingertips to find out and to pray. We could ask Dinesh, hey, who, who could we pray for? Um, and I'm sure some of you have know people, you hear stories, you read, and, and some of you have shared that information. I'm not saying that that we're all in the same, but I can speak for myself. I don't pray for or think about my persecuted brothers and sisters. Some of them are killed. Some of them are persecuted severely. And these sections of Scripture, though we're studying the life of Saul, to be also known as Paul, he persecuted the church. He put Christians in prison, and it still happens today. So let us pray and support our persecuted brothers and sisters. Lord, help us to do it, to pray more, to think, maybe to write a letter. I don't know if it's possible, but at least at the minimum and very important is to pray for those brothers and sisters. And I know in America itself, in small ways, people get persecuted. They could get fired. They could be treated poorly. There's many ways that persecution happens. It's not only being killed or put in prison but those are extremely painful to lose your home, as some did in Hebrews. They were kicked out of their houses. Forgive us, Lord. Forgive me for not praying and thinking about the persecuted church. Well, this persecuted church, it says also, 
They were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Outwardly, Saul and, and the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, the scribes, they, they were outwardly successful. They almost extinguished the church at Jerusalem. Everybody was scattered. They, they went around to the towns uh, around Judea and Samaria, except the apostles, which is very interesting that God kept the apostles there. More of that in the future. And we'll see even later in Acts, the church at Jerusalem is, is growing and active. So God kept his church at Jerusalem, but many were scattered. So Saul's persecution actually led to an expansion of the gospel. That's God's sovereign work. The persecution of the church led to the growth of the church. And maybe think of the Reformation. And next week we'll put up the five solas. And we think about the Reformation also was a time of great persecution. And people fled and some went to Geneva and some went here to translate the Bible. And some, like Luther, was was um, uh, sequestered in the Wartburg Castle and he translated the Bible into German. And many great things happened during that time. And even the pilgrims that were trying to gain religious freedom that came to America. So sometimes God uses persecution to grow the church, to spread the gospel, which is glorious. And Actually, verse 4 is, is wonderful. It says, Therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. A.T. Robertson said, These were emergency preachers. They hadn't been necessarily set aside as elders or trained up. They just had to go and they were, they were spreading the gospel. Um, bring the good news, the, the good word. They were gospelizing. Um, all because, why? Because they were scattered. They didn't just tuck their head between their knees and tuck their tail and run. They, they did flee, and sometimes you should flee. But they fled and told others about Jesus, the good news that Christ saves great sinners. I thought of Genesis fifty twenty, but you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Saul and all of these wicked Pharisees and scribes meant it for evil, but they were only fulfilling God's plan to spread the gospel. Lesson six, persecution of Christ's church will never destroy it. Persecution of Christ's church will never destroy it. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. That's glorious news. Now, individual local churches can come and go and be persecuted, but the body of Christ, the the invisible church of God, manifested in local churches, will always continue until the end. The gates of Hades will not prevail, will not overpower the church. Persecution of Christ's church will never destroy it. Christ is powerful. He's the head of the church, universal, and he's the head of Pilgrim Bible Church. He will do with us as he pleases, and he is all-powerful. It's glorious news. And again, the apostles 
except the apostles. So even the church at Jerusalem, though the majority was that everyone, literally every person except the apostles, maybe, but whatever the case, the apostles were still there. They were still there preaching the word to those that were there. It probably went from thousands to just a few. Yet it continued, and we'll see the church at Jerusalem throughout uh, the rest of this study in Acts. Then moving to uh, further into 8, 2, and 3, uh, some devout men buried Stephen. Were those the believers that were mentioned in the previous chapters? Was it some Jews that just had mercy? We don't know. Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But Saul, emphatically, but Saul began ravaging the church. He went entering house after house and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison because they were proclaiming Christ as the Messiah. They were telling the truths that Jesus had preached, yes, that he would destroy the temple and raise it again, physically destroying the temple, but also the resurrection was himself. And they kept telling that, those truths, and Saul couldn't stand it. He ravaged the church like a wild beast. It's, it's, a, it's the, the word ravage here. It's like laying waste to a vineyard by a wild boar. Uh, you know, maybe here we have the deer getting out and eating all your rose bushes. No, it's much worse than that. It's an animal getting in there and ripping everything apart violently. Paul was a violent aggressor entering house after house. Remember in, in Acts 2, it said that they were, um, they were, uh, Continuing, Acts 2.46, in the breaking of bread from house to house. They would gather together, but then they'd go to so-and-so's house and have a fellowship time and a Bible study. And probably all those people that came uh, for, for Pentecost, 50 days after Passover, maybe they stayed and all these people were from out of town. They were having fellowship after fellowship, opening their homes, and they were meeting for Bible studies and to understand what was happening, comparing the Old Testament with what Jesus and the apostles were saying. And yet this man was ravaging the church at Jerusalem, going after everybody from house to house, dragging them away. It was horrible. It was horrible. I think we can read over these words. Yeah, he was dragging. No, they were being physically dragged out of the house. Maybe it was during a Bible study or a family meal. How did they know? There were informants. We don't know. Names were given. Men and women put into prison, persecuted, and very likely, if they didn't recant, put to death because they followed Jesus, the Messiah. This is only the second use of the word church in the book of Acts, and it relates to what? Persecution. The church was born for persecution. Not the news we want to hear, but it's what Jesus told us would happen. Paul would say later, I persecuted this way, the the Christian followers uh, of Jesus, I persecuted this way to death. Binding and putting both men and women into prisons. I turn over to Acts 26 to get a little more information. Acts 26. It's amazing how much Paul reflects back on this season of his life. Acts 26, verse 9. 
He says, so then I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prisons, plural, not just one prison, many prisons, having received authority from the chief priests, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. Would that include Stephen? Possibly. But he had authority from the chief priests, the very people that were supposed to lead the people of God to, to the Messiah. They were approving and sending out Saul to imprison them and put them to death. Again, grievous. Paul said in Galatians, For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. He wanted to stamp out Christianity. Lesson seven. Woe unto those who hear the gospel and are hardened by it. Woe unto those who hear the gospel and are hardened by it. Paul later was preaching in Acts 19, after his conversion, of course, he was preaching in Acts 19 uh, at um, Ephesus, verse 8, and he describes people like he was before conversion. Acts 19, verses 8 and 9 And he, Paul, entered the synagogue and continued speaking out boldly for three months. We go to a weekend camp or or a week-long conference. For three months, he was uh, speaking out boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some were becoming hardened and disobedient, speaking evil of the way, Christ and his followers before the people, he withdrew from them and took away the disciples and he left. So woe unto those who hear the gospel and are hardened by it. Saul, when we're back in our uh, chapter here, 8, he was not softened by the preaching of the gospel. He wasn't softened by Stephen's sermon or other messages that he heard. He was hardened. So beware of being hardened. You can hear the gospel every day, every week. But if you don't respond to it and lay hold of Christ as your Lord, you're being hardened. And you will ultimately be destroyed by God in hell unless you repent. We rejoice that Saul was converted, but many others were not and are not who have heard and heard and heard for weeks and months and years and years So today is the day of salvation. Here today and run to Christ who saves great sinners. There's still time while you're alive. And then pray for those who have hard hearts. And by God's grace at prayer meeting, we try to bring forward people that have apostatized, people that have hard hearts. We pray for our friends and loved ones who have hard hearts and we point them to Jesus who saves hard-hearted people like Saul of Tarsus.
many warnings, many illustrations of how not to live and how to live. And next week we will come to chapter 9, the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. When Jesus came to save him on the road to Damascus, what a glorious um, story, the truth of how God saves and would make this violent aggressor and violent persecutor of even putting men and women in prison, having them killed and murdered into one of the greatest Christians that ever lived. So we can pray for people. We can spread the gospel. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. We can call people to believe, to repent, knowing that God is in the business of saving, that Jesus is in the business of saving the worst types. Praise Him that He saved us. Any questions or comments as we conclude this morning? It's shocking that even Jesus on the cross, they, they let the, the thief go, they let the other guy go, uh, um, Barsab, Barsabbas, Rabbis. Yeah, they let him go, and they, and they kill our Lord. And here's this man, Stephen, preaching like, really? And that's why it's so dangerous that, that the, the supposedly the leaders of God's people became the killers of God's people. It's just beyond us, but then we see the depravity of the heart. Yes, you're right. Yes, sister. And I think you know, right now we we see the wickedness of Hamas and and their violence against. <laughs> Jews as well as their own people, and God can save them. And I th- shame on us for not praying for that. Um, you know, we can say, "Lord, you know, punish them and or save them both." We can pray both in the same breath. And uh, no one alive is unsavable. And that's what Paul said in First Timothy, that you know, he's the example. If God can save me, He can save anyone. And I think we might all say the same. There was nothing in us to make us lovely. Um, yes. Anything else? Yes, sister. Yes, it's a great book. I can't wait to get it again and hopefully be more consistent in praying through it. Um, Yes, that's a great book. Operation World by Patrick Johnson. And I think the latest edition is, is 2010, if I remember but it's updated every few years. Um, yeah, I encourage you to get it and, and, and pray yourself, pray with your family. Um, again, we have our missionaries and others uh, that we know of, but there's not a lack of info to pray for our persecuted, our brothers and sisters, yes. Anything else? Okay, well, let's conclude with prayer. Father, thank you uh, for this opportunity to Look at something that's not comfortable. Wouldn't be a text that we might just choose, Lord. But it's the truth of your word. And we know that 
all scripture is inspired of God and profitable for teaching. Lord, teach us what you would have us to learn. Remind us, Lord. Thank you for reminding me, Lord, that I need to pray for the persecuted church. Forgive me, Lord. Forgive any of us that don't do it regularly. And may we be mindful of our fellow saints that are in jail, that are persecuted even in America, but around the world. Father, would you encourage them? Would you free them? Would justice be done? Have mercy, Father. And we pray that none of us here would be those that know a lot about Jesus, yet be unsaved. Lord, lest any of us preachers or elders or pastors and all the body, that we would not just talk, but that we would really know you, our God, that we would know Christ to be most precious, and that by faith we would see you, our God. Lord, may we hate what you hate. May we not approve and condone of wickedness, Lord, even as Saul did. Father, we are amazed that at the power of the gospel that you would save the likes of us. Lord, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. And we were ungodly. Father, thank you for your grace and your mercy. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for saving us. And may we rededicate ourselves to you and be useful in the kingdom. And may we Tell others how you saved us, and may that be part of our witness. May we tell of the good news that Christ came to save sinners, and those that repent and believe will be saved. Father, may that be more important to us than it has been. Father, have mercy on each of us, and um, help us as we progress in this study to appreciate your word, to study it closely, to think about it, to apply it. And we just rejoice that you are with us. May you protect us from persecution. Thank you for the peace we've had, and may we not squander it, but use it to the furtherance of your kingdom and for your glory. Be with us today in Jesus' name. Amen.